nothing like a nothing like a lukewarm cup of slot machine coffee in a paper cup lined with what appears to be the residue of a kerosene lamp. It's good. You don't like that? What's the matter? <laughs> Hello, gang. I'm on the scene. Uh, I uh, hesitate to bring you uh, truly and, and clearly, as uh, the late Hemingway would say, I hesitate to bring you the subject of tonight's uh, program. I mean, just bring it out bald face there, you know, like an eagle flapping its way over your backyard. And uh, I just hesitate to do it, so I will approach it with some... Uh, a trepidation and indirection. So, uh, if you will, please, Nick, will you please bring us a little culture first? Thank you. 
Did you enjoy that, Nick? Fine. Uh, there, I don't often uh, treat the victims to that uh, sort of thing. That's something I keep very much to myself. Oh, declassified. Okay, now listen, uh, in answer to a lot of uh, letters that have arrived here uh, asking about it, I don't know I don't know quite how, what to say, but uh, I'll, I'll just lay it out for what it's worth. I do have a new LP out, and a lot of people have written me, and, and one guy in particular said that he heard about it, and he wanted to know all the story. So here is the story. It's a new LP. It's the first LP I've turned out since, oh, 1963 or four when I turned out a few on, on another label. And this is called The Declassified Gene Shepherd. Uh, and it's uh, subtitled, uh, The Public Has a Right to Know. And by God, they do. Absolutely. And it's in stereo. You put this thing on your stereo, and on one side you can hear me playing a Jews harp, and on the other side hitting my head, and on the middle side I'm dancing a jig. So that's The Declassified Gene Shepherd, and it is on Mercury. You can get it in any record shop. I know for a fact that uh, Sam Goody uh, has just reordered. And, uh, in fact, any major record shop, I don't want to plug anyone particular, uh, you'll find them at Abraham and Strauss. Wherever you buy records, you tell them you want Mercury, number SRM, SRM, this is a serial number, SRM1-615, the declassified Gene Shepherd. The public has a right to know. People have written to me, and I'm uh, answering the questions here tonight on the air. People have written to me and say, Mr. Shepard, where do you get your inspiration? Uh, how do you, uh, how do you uh, pull it all together? Uh, how at night when you must think great thoughts and, and uh, put magnificent concepts on paper when I'm writing, how do you do this? How do you shut out the rest of the world? Well, all great men have uh, techniques that they use to, uh, let's say, sprinkle the fertile flower of truth and, and liberty and action and beauty into the, the fallow fields of their mind. Uh, a good example of that, of course, is the, is the great uh, detective Dr. Sherlock Holmes. We all know. Uh, how many people know that he had a doctorate? Did you know that he, he did not use it? It was just uh, uh, fleetingly referred to in one of the journals of Dr. Watson that uh, Sherlock Holmes had taken a doctorate. He did not say, however, in what the field was. He was not an M.D. And uh, all of you know, of course, that on quiet evenings uh, after he has been confronted with an obviously almost insoluble case that required a tremendous amount of concentration uh, in his digs, and uh, Nick, since you're the reading member of our engineering staff who has uh, graduated from Allied and Lafayette catalogs and uh, has long since found that the Heath catalog has begun to pall on him and uh, has even found comic books somewhat dull. Uh, where did Mr. Holmes live? Do you recall the street that he lived on? Because it's a famous street. No, it was not. Uh, you're wrong. It was uh, Baker Street. You heard of Baker Street. His digs on Baker Street. What was his address? Seven. The hell? Where, where, what, what a human reading. It's 221B, Baker Street. And what was the name of his landlady? A Mrs. Hudson. And uh, his digs, uh, there was always a great opening to his stories. Uh, often uh, the opening would begin that uh, Holmes and I were enjoying a bit of after-dinner port when suddenly the sound of hoof, uh, the beat of hoof, 
hoofs could be heard outside on the rainy street and, and Baker Street. It was a cold and rainy night. And suddenly the carriage stopped directly in front of our, our uh, Holmes' apartment. Instantly, Holmes leaped up and began to pace and said, Watson, a short, stout lady wearing a green cummerbund is about to knock upon our door. She is severely troubled over the death of her cousin Cuthbert, a mysterious event which occurred in North Hampstead Heath. Of course, uh, and, uh, and at that point, Watson would say, Why, George, how do you know this? And Holmes say, Elementary, my dear Watson, elementary. And immediately after the lady had left, uh, Holmes would uh, quietly uh, pick up his violin and say to Watson, this is at least a three-pipe case, Watson. And he would quietly begin to play his instrument to compose his thoughts. He would compose his thoughts. And so it is with me, for those of you who are curious, how uh, I, particularly among the great men of our time, compose his thoughts. There are times when I sit and play a little Mozart on my nose flute. It's a Polynesian instrument. That I'll just uh, give you a little sample of how we work it. This is the bridge. Thank you, thank you. You can see how with the pull it all together. And it certainly does. It requires an intense amount of concentration. And, of course, it, uh, it waters the somewhat arid fields of aesthetic experience. And uh, I enjoy it. And then there are the other nights when, uh, when I realize that the only thing that will do it to me is my Jews harp. At which point I will pick up my Jews harp and quietly begin to strum an old Sicilian air on the Jews harp. You're curious how a Sicilian air goes on a Jews harp. This goes like this. sound, in fact. And then, of course, uh, there are times when there's nothing do it. Nothing. Nothing. We'll do it like beer. <laughs> I judge. Now we're getting right down to it, aren't we? Now we're getting down. And as I say, I wanted to approach this somewhat uh, circuitously. That tonight's program is about beer. And uh, I'm taking no stand on beer. I mean, no editorial judgment. Merely reporting beer is a fact of our time. As a matter of fact, it has been reported reliably. Have you ever, have you ever thought what would happen if tomorrow morning, magically, just if, if some 
some giant uh, uh, beer monster uh, where it's to suddenly appear on the scene. You know, like the cookie monster? Uh, a beer monster would come... Beer. By the way, that would be a very funny character for them to try on uh, Sesame Street. The beer monster. He's always half pie-eyed, you know. He keeps on... Beer! <laughs> beer! They just stick a can of beer in his trap. Uh, speaking of monsters, this is W.O.R. in New York. By George, it certainly is. Well, let's see. We have a note here for Hoffman Coos. If you've been looking for those special, distinctive Christmas gifts that really make it, you'll find a lot of them at Hoffman Coos. And according to this note here, that's what makes Christmas shopping at any of the Hoffman Coos 13 fine furniture stores in New Jersey and New York such a groovy pleasure. A big family furniture gift or an intimate remembrance you can select for more great items than you believe possible. Now, that's Huffman Coos. Right now, they're having special values and gifts in every area. And you'll enjoy coffee and pastries. I guess they serve a little coffee over there. Sparkling holiday decorations, Christmas music. And they have unhurried professional salespeople, which is in itself a delight. Make Christmas a real delight by shopping at Huffman Coos. Now, they're open from 9.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night on Saturday till 6 p.m. Call area code 201-343-4300 for the Huffman Coos nearest you. Wolf's Kasha, Wolf's Kasha. It's a sing. Come on, I don't want to sing about Wolf's Kasha. No, no, I want to... <laughs> That's what the copy says. It says, sing in loud Robert Goulet-type voice. Well, uh... <laughs> Let's put it on this basis, friends. Kasha is a centuries-old popular food staple of popular Eastern Europe. And Kasha is getting popular here, too, all over here in America. Yeah, it's a delicious change of taste for rice, potatoes, or pasta. And the popular one, the one that's really making it big, is Wolf's Kasha, which was made from golden brown buckwheat kernels, also buckwheat groats. And uh, <laughs> everybody knows what a good groat is like. But what's making Wolf's Kasha is so popular is the wonderful nut-like taste. It's very inexpensive, and it tastes groovy. And you can have a lot of fun with it. You can make it little balls and throw it back and forth at friends and make it into popsicles. Wolf's Kasha with two Fs. Wolf's Kasha. Hooray. Yes, I have here a, uh, a letter here I have just received from one of our victims up in Vermont. And he says, Shepard, I want to thank you. You have opened up my life completely. I am now loved in the neighborhood... There are women chasing me. I've uh, been able to uh, grow more hair on the top of my head, all because of that fantastic flying bird. He says, that thing not only flies, but I am flying now. So if you would like to try this, friends, you just send $3.98 to Flying Birds. Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York. And the zip is 10017. Now, that's $3.98 per each, check or money order. The address, again, is Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, zip 10017. <laughs> yes, uh, this letter, by the way, is tear-stained, and it was obviously written in a great hurry. He's on his way to Mexico with a chick, all as a result of this fantastic Flying Bird. Oh, man, does the thought of winter driving give you the unbelievable chills? <laughs> no need. With General Winter Tires, you go in snow, or big old General pays the tow. Yeah, yeah, bring it up big, George. Want to hear them songs? Right now, your nearby General Tire store is offering a pair of Fairness 
winter cleat black wall snow tires for only $38. Size 650 by 13. Federal excise tax is $176 per tire. Larger sizes also available at comparable prices. White walls about $3 more per tire. This great general tire has four full flies of Nigen nylon cord and a deep cleat four rib tread that digs and grips. So take advantage of General's low pair price on snow tires now for all winter driving. Drive in where you see the big red General Tire G. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I was uh, kind of set off on that a couple of, in fact, a few months ago. You might have seen our television show. We did a show on beer. Did you see that show, Nick? You heard about it? Well, that show got more response than any single show that the public network did all last year. Male hoopla, yelling, screaming, tub thumping, cheers, whatever it was. Beer is a controversial subject, like all important parts of life. I mean, you know, like sex, war. These are all important parts of life. You can't get around it. And certainly beer is. You know that beer is one of the first things that, that ancient man actually created? Did you know that? That there is no evidence at, at any point. Uh, no one can find out where beer started. It goes back so early in, in the ancient... They even feel that Neanderthal man had a form of beer. Yes. And, and I'm not kidding. And the, the reason it was so was because he would bring things into his hovel or whatever it is he lived, and uh, he, would, he would put stuff away. Like if, if, say, for example, they ate acorns, for example. They, you know, they... Uh, they, they'd eat all kinds of things. Neanderthal man was not just a was not just a carnivore. He was that, but he was many things. And he ate he ate berries, and many times he would bring large amounts of berries back that he could not eat. He'd bring them in the bring them in, in in, in short store to stuff. And uh, naturally, the cave or where it is he lived, it, they didn't have air conditioning. Well, he, you know, it was not as good air conditioning as you've got out there in Staten Island and stuff like that. See. And uh, the refrigerator had not been completely uh, perfected at the time. And so what would happen, the berries would lay down in, in, in the, on the ground, <laughs> and the rain would come in, and uh, they'd be there for a couple of weeks. And the next thing you know, he's got, uh, he's got this, you know, kind of interesting juice there floating around over the berries. It would ferment. And so very early in his life, a Neanderthal man found that the juice of a fermented berry uh, was kind of groovy. <laughs> and, uh, of course, immediately thereafter, the anti-berry juice crowd grew up in the same cave. There was always, there's always one. I mean, you take, believe me, for every action, there's a reaction. You can find this true in any, any physical, uh, it's, it's almost like Newton's law of physics. Physics, you know, for every, every uh, kick, there's three guys who jump up and say, hey, cut it out there. Uh, this is the reaction. It's always there, no matter what. So uh, no matter what enjoyment man has found over the past 2,000 years or more, 50,000 years or more, there's always been three wet blankets sitting in the back of a cave who predict the end of civilization as we know it. He always uses that phrase. The end of civilization because Og is sitting up the front drinking berry juice. I mean, any good caveman should sit around and chew bones. He's up there drinking berry juice and look at him. You notice how funny his eyes are getting? You notice he's telling dirty stories and he's pinching the chicks when they come in? Well, okay. Uh, this is the action and reaction. And the beer has always, 
is always, uh, you know, it's, it's a, in, in basically an integral part of, of uh, life. And in many parts of the world, they think of beer as food. We think of it as uh, what keeps television running. Now, as a, matter, <laughs> as a matter of fact, can you imagine what would happen if the beer monster showed up, Nick, tomorrow, and magically he made all beer disappear? What would happen to Chris Schenkel? For God's sakes, what would happen to all the, uh, every, practically every football team overnight will be out of business? Certainly television would totter on its, uh, on its foundation. That would be the end of the ballgame. We get rid of the beer commercials. I mean, just uh, think what would happen on a Sunday afternoon. Pro football's gone. The ball games are gone. Everything's gone. They're all, beer is important, you know. After all, what is it that, that ball players hit? Valentine Blast, right? Yes, sir. They, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, every city has a name like that that it applies to whatever it is the guy hits. What is it in Cincinnati? You know what that is? Huh? Well, they've, been, they've had several. They had a shaneling smash. At one time, a ball player used to hit a, a Hudipole, a Hudipole homer. There it goes. It's another Hudipole homer in the upper deck. That's their beer locally there, see? So uh, I suppose in, in uh, Philadelphia or, or in Pittsburgh, you hit a foul, uh, a fall city foul. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But the thing is, beer is, a, is, a, is basically a, a staff of life. It's, a, it's an offshoot of, a, we're going to be very serious about it. It's an offshoot of grain, right? And it has a lot of vitamins and everything. Uh, you know, that's, that's why you drink beer, right, friend? Get all that vitamins. Well, there was a story that appeared in the Business Observer, which is an English paper. And uh, maybe you don't know what goes on behind the scenes in beer. I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you tonight. I mean, uh, this is a, we're doing a little pro-beer show here tonight. In fact, a lot of our footage on our television show was shot in a, a gigantic brewery in Milwaukee. In fact, it was the Schlitz Brewery in Milwaukee. All you, can, you, you know, all of you know about Schlitz beer. We don't have them as a commercial, so I'm not plugging anybody here. But we shot it in Schlitz. And the, one, of the, one of the great things that I found, it was the only place I visited in a long time, Nick, really, where the people who worked in the place dug the product. I mean, boy, it, 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 they really dug it. I mean, there was no... There was no, you know, well, let us take care at the station, you know. You have, uh, I would say out of the station, probably 75% of the people who work here don't listen to the station. You know, it's kind of very hip. So, you know, come on, you, know, you don't listen to the station. You, you go to, you go to uh, a, a, an automobile dealer and you find that the really hip salesman owns a Ferrari. You know, isn't uh, Come on, that's, that's for the people out there. See, oh, you did not find this, uh, let's put it th this way, this digging gap at the Schlitz place. In fact, every guy I stopped, I would walk around saying, here's a guy standing in an apron there and he's watching a great big vat of beer and it's a tremendous vat that's about 50 million gallons and it's going, Shh. you know, it's bubbling and hissing and you could see the gigantic uh, head of foam on this enormous tank full of uh, beer that they're cooking and I'd walk up to the guy and say, hey, uh, excuse me, sir, say, what do you want? And he's got a big paddle or something, he's working on the beer. I said, I'd like to ask you what it seems to be a silly question. Ah, oh, go ahead. I'm used to silly questions. You ought to hear my wife. So, well, uh, excuse me, sir, but uh, do you like beer? So, what are you, what are you talking about? He says, do you like beer? Yeah, do you mind? Do I like beer? Oh, I was obviously like beer. In fact, do you know that in, in the beer companies, the guys where they make the beer, that they have as part of their contract? That's a fact. 
they have as part of their contract that they get either one or two free cases of beer a week delivered to their house. It's part of their union contract. <laughs> now that that the that shows uh, an absolute dedication to your work. I mean, they take it home with them. And in fact, <laughs> you know, in, in the beer places that I... We were in several breweries in Milwaukee, and this particular one was Schlitz. And uh, that they have, during the day, they have a beer break. Just like we have a coffee break, they have a beer break. And a guy's entitled to so many free beers. So they come along, you know, and he takes his, his beer, and they make about four different types of beer there in this particular brewery. And so we went down to the we went down to the cafeteria. They have a, a workers' cafeteria. They seen between noon, and when you come into the brewery there, you go down to the cafeteria. And of course, they have a regular it's a little cafeteria. They serve uh, uh, you know meatloaf and stuff like that. Regular cafeteria, and they, they pay a, a nominal amount of money for the cafeteria. But at the end of the cafeteria line, just tremendous tank, and it's filled right to the top with ice. And guess what's in that uh, tank? It ain't Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> you see about 500 bottles of beer. And a lot of it's experimental, incidentally. Stuff you never see in the market. They, they're turning out the separate types of beer. So guy come along and he grabs a bottle of beer and he opens it. And uh, here he is. He's all day long. He's been working with beer. Now he's really digging it. He sits down you know, and he takes out his... He uh, uh, loosens his overalls and he opens the bottle of beer. And uh, he... Uh, Cuts the meatloaf and he takes a great big uh, slug of that beer. Ah! <laughs> and I was in the middle of these people. I thought, Gee, you know, uh, we never hear about beer. You know, everybody hears about it in commercials, but you don't hear about beer. Well, one of the things that fascinated me in this in the brewery scene there was uh, the top department where they make tops. You know, the, the beer bottle tops, just the caps. And they had great big cases, thousands of cases of caps. And what got me was that some of the caps I'd never heard of the beer at all. I mean, it's a completely alien beer. I never, never, never heard of this kind of beer. And I asked guys, well, what, you know, what, what kind of beer is this? So, well, we make beer for, you know, about like 50 different companies all around the world. And it's shipped under a different cap that is only known at that area. And uh, very rare bottle caps, and I'll tell you, my hands was, were itching because one of the first hobbies I ever had as a kid, and maybe this is why I've always been interested in the subject, was collecting beer bottle caps, rare beer bottle You ever do this, Nick? You collect rare beer bottle caps. And I'll tell you, I saw some beer bottle caps. You wouldn't believe they had Japanese printing on everything. And a real wild looking. And the great labels, that thousands of fantastic labels that... Uh, that are on beer cans, lithograph labels that go on various cans that you never see in, you know, normal uh, uh, beer can collecting. And then, of course, I got to know a lot of fantastic beer can collectors. In fact, let's, I got a piece here about it. Let me, let, me listen, let, me, let me show you this. Look at this guy. In fact, they had a piece recently in one of the local papers on this guy. In fact, it was, a, I think it was a Newsday. But anyway, it says, if beer lovers had a religion, Ernie... Weist, O-E-S-T, would be their god. Ernie Weist has perhaps the largest collection of beer cans, more than 5,000, all different, in the world. Ernie Weist has 63 volumes in which he has pasted 21,000 different beer bottle labels from the U.S. alone. Oh, fantastic. 
and a set of files containing another 100,000 labels from around the world. He has about 400 beer trays, 600 beer signs, thousands of beer coasters, and an attic full and a basement full of beer lights, beer cocks, beer mugs, steins, beer can openers, beer bottle caps, beer-sponsored litter bags, fly swatters, pot holders, ashtrays, hats, buttons, pins, sweatshirts. <laughs> On top of that, in 1965, he left his job as a 24-year veteran machinist uh, to take a job uh, where he sells beer. <laughs> He's totally devoted. Now, I'll tell you more about beer. In the, in the Business Observer, listen to this. This is England. The ability to hold aloft a pint of bitter, peer into amber depths, quaff and vociferously pronounce judgment is generally regarded as a peculiarly male gift. Indeed, some would say it's the very test of manhood. Alas, no. At the risk of sobering up a host of public beer pundits, public beer pundits, of course, are taverns uh, over, over in England, uh, a public house, a pub. That's where you get the word pub. It comes from public house. Is a tavern here. Uh, at the risk of sobering up a host of public beer pundits, it must now be revealed that long before the beer reaches their discerning palates, it has been tasted, graded, and approved by two completely expert women. These are great beer tasters. At least that is so far as those who sup at the pubs of Britain's second biggest brewer, Allied Breweries. Down at, it, down at its Rumford Brewery, the team of tasters includes Miss Margaret Aitken and 26-year-old Miss Joan Stacy. At 10 a.m., do you know this happens in every brewery? Are you curious that in Schlitz I met the tasters? Every morning, this is what happens. And this is in England as well as here. At 10 a.m. sharp on every working day, the ladies join six men in a clinically clean white-tiled room and set about sampling the latest brew. The tasting is a dignified affair. Samples are frighteningly small, and the whole ceremony takes place in almost total silence. They don't talk to each other. I actually saw them doing this in Schlitz every morning. It's all very scientific, says Miss Aiken, a microbiologist and the Rumford Laboratory's manager. She has been tasting beer for nine years now and sees it as a perfectly natural thing for a woman to do. I hope, she says, that we're setting a pattern for other brewers to follow. Mrs. Stacy, also a graduate microbiologist, talks about ale with learned intensity. Few pathogenic organs will survive in beer. Did you know this? In other words, germs. Few pathogenic organs will survive in beer was one of her more reassuring observations. Both enjoy totally a glass of beer socially, but confess that it doesn't do to let on that they have a special and a superior knowledge. After all, a taster's vocabulary could cause grave offense to a self-respecting publican, guy that runs a tavern. Terms like sickly, cloying, unclean, musky, or fusty are all words that are used to describe the taste of beer among experts. Imagine anyone, especially a woman, walking into the Rosen Crown and saying, uh, the best bitter is mawkish tonight, Fred. We would never do that, says Mrs. Stacy, and Miss Aiken agrees. Beer, she says, with respect. And listen to this, all of you anti-beer people. Beer, she says, with respect, is both an art and a science. In fact, it is a way of life.
Okay. <laughs> well, you know, uh, beer is a is a strange scene. And uh, have you ever known anybody who made his own beer? Well, you know, that's a growing hobby all around the country, making your own beer. Did you know that? You didn't? You aren't hip to this? Oh, yeah. It's two of the, of, of the fastest-growing hobbies in America are making beer and wine. And you've all heard of making your own wine. And uh, you can even buy kits. But making your own beer is something else. And I had an uncle when I was a kid that really have, was legendary for making his for making beer. It was Uncle Carl. I'm tell, I'll tell you the truth. He was a legendary beer maker. And he lived in this apartment in Chicago. You didn't have to have a big place to make beer, you know. He lived in this, this apartment in Chicago. And, and when I was a kid, we would go visit him usually on weekends once in a while when he was sober, you know. And we'd, we'd go there. And one fantastic day... Uh, and, and I remember it like it was engraved in my mind. You know, kids are fascinated by machinery, and uh, especially male kids. And there's nothing nothing that will turn on a male kid more than, say, to take him into the cockpit of a 707. He remembered all his life. Uh, anything to do with machinery and some, you know, esoteric process. And I used to get bored. Man, I was always bored, see, when we would visit the relatives. There's nothing that will turn you off quicker then, uh, like on a Friday night, they announced that you're going to go visit Aunt Min. Oh, you know, oh wow, a whole weekend shot. You know, all, all, all the, all, you know, all the rest of the kids are playing ball or doing some groovy thing, and I'm visiting Aunt Min, and it's sitting around. And I used to hate that. Well, one, one weekend we were going to visit Aunt Min, as a matter of fact. You're uh, really bored, and so we go, we go to, to Chicago. We're going to you know, visit him. He lives in this apartment. And we go up the stairs, get up there, and there's Uncle Carl sitting in there, and he's, and he's, he's all dressed up because we're visiting, and a couple of people are over, and it's a visiting day, see, and the morning drags on, and all of a sudden, my Uncle Carl says to my dad, he says, listen, he says, you want to go downstairs? I'm going to show you something. So the old man says, yeah, yeah, because he was bored, too, see. He says, come on down. He says, bring the kid. And at that moment, I was treated to something which I had, I, I'll never forget. It's a fantastic moment. We went downstairs. Well, now, when you go to people's basement, what are you used to seeing in the basement? You know, tool, tool. They got a workbench, pile of tires in the corner, that kind of stuff. Well, in the basement of this apartment house, every, every apartment, every, every apartment had downstairs an assigned... Well, it was like a like a, a wooden closet, a big closet that went from the ceiling to the floor, you know, and they had a, a wooden door on it, and it was like a little room, and you're you know supposed to store uh, uh, bicycles and old uh, footballs and uh, all your old furniture and junk and this stuff. Well, Uncle Carl's got a lock on his, as they all did, and his looked like all the rest, exactly like the rest. And he opens this lock, and he looks around for us. See, make sure nobody else is down there. So he opens the lock, and he swings the door open, and me and my old man follow Uncle Carl quickly into the dark. He says, come on, let's come on inside. See, we go into the dark in this darkened room. It's made out of wood, and he closes the door and locks it from the inside. Then he puts a lock inside, the one he took from the outside. Now he puts it inside. It's in the dark. And I, I, there was a curious smell in there. 
that hit me right away. A curious, sweet, uh, a rich, vaguely sickening smell. Which, as a little kid, I must have been about five. I had no idea what the hell it was. It was just very overpowering. And he throws on a light. He had this thing all built. It was a light up there. He had a little fluorescent light. He throws the light on. And it, it was fantastic. It was like a, a very private... It looked like a mad scientist laboratory. Now, I never... My Uncle Carl was just this guy. you know. All of a sudden, a very different type. He had built all around the side of this place. He built like a wooden shelf that stuck out maybe three or four feet from the wall. And it was braced with uh, big braces. It was like a table. It ran all, like a U-shaped table is what it in effect was. And sunken down into this table, I can still see it in my mind, he had stone crocks, big ones. I mean, these things were like, well, you, have you seen the kind of crock that comes with marmalade? Well, these were stone, you know, these gray stone crocks like they make gallon jugs out of, and stone. And he had these things sunk into these shelves that had a big cutout, a, a, a circle, and he had them sunk down into there. There must have been about five of them, all in a line there. You could see why it was braced, see? And then over the tops of each one of these, this is what really fascinated me, he had like big rubber, it looked like a big rubber cap, that was this light, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, this this rubber they have that's a sterile rubber. It, it's used on things like babies' nipples and stuff like laboratory equipment. It's a kind of a light amber-colored rubber. Well, he had these big rubber caps that bulged up at the top with pipes that came out of it, rubber pipes. And in these pipes, there, there were meters. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what, you know, what these meters uh, actually... Uh, Measured, but they were great big dials, like you see in the in laboratories, and they had black numbers, and they had great big black needles out of it stuff. And so down at the end, he had he had all these crocks, see, and it was chilled in there. He had built a refrigeration unit. The room was chilled, and down at the end, he had these a great big crock that was that was sunken down, and this apparently was where he kept the the uh, the new beer, the beer which he had just made. And it was like aging or something. So he says to the old man, he says, this is where I make it. And the old man looks at him and says, what's that? And the car says, well, over there is where I put the mash in. He said, put the mash in over there. And it, uh, that's the first fermenting stage. It goes through here. And he says, a week later, I remove it and put it over here. And then he says, I have a certain amount of heat. My old man is standing with his eyes are, are big like, like saucers looking at this thing. And Carl says, look, he says, I've got a new badge. Can you want to try some of it? And he's got, over in the corner, he's got this refrigerated thing. It's, a, it's like a barrel, saying it's filled with this beer. And it's got a spigot coming out of the side. Saying, whoosh, he draws a great big thing of beer. He had these big tin mugs. They were tin. I remember the tin mugs. I have never seen any sense like that. And I later learned, by the way, this is used in many breweries. It's a professional type of, uh, of a glass they use. It's like they use it around their work, see? And it, he, he pours this thing in a big head, and he gives some to my old man. The old man tastes it. See, he blows the top off. Oh, that's good. He says, that's real good, Carl. You're really doing great. And Carl, he, he draws himself one. He says, how about giving a kid some? So my old man says, well, you know, won't hurt him. So I tasted the spear. 
was the first beer I ever had in my life. I'd never had beer before, and I tasted it. Of course, kids don't like beer, naturally. They really don't, at least most kids at first. Beer is like olives. It's an acquired taste. <clears throat> you know, tasted the... I was expecting something like Coke or, uh, you know, something like root beer somehow. You know, I, I thought it was Dad's old-fashioned root beer or something. It was actually Carl's old-fashioned beer beer is what I was drinking. See, so oh, it was bitter. And, and the old man says, oh, that's great. So the two of them sat down there. Carl had, had this old sofa in this place. And they sat down there and they, they, they drank about three of these great big schooners of beer. They're talking away there, and Carl, all the while, is telling them about the beer. And once in a while, one of these crocs would go, make a sound. I remember it go, and you'd see the rubber thing go up. It would just sort of expand with the gas in this beer. And as we sat there, all the while, it was, and Carl said, well, you see, that's why I've got the, you see, the place is all insulated here, see. And, and he was so great with tools and stuff. My drunken Uncle Carl, he was truly in his nutty, crazy way, kind of a genius, that he had, he had completely insulated this place, and outside, you would never know but what he hasn't got old uh, bicycle tires and, uh, you know, old football stored in there. Actually, he had this whole little factory, and he made his own beer. Well, from that, you know, from that minute on, I always, <laughs> I don't know why, I mean, beer has always seemed to be a curious thing. And, and uh, it was much more than just uh, always seeing beer as part of a six-pack. Uncle Carl became very famous. And he used to, every party that was held for miles around that my old man was involved in, the whole thing was to go over to Carl's place and get some of Carl's beer. His beer was apparently magnificent. It is still a legend in the area where he lived. And one night it came to an abrupt end. This is so often happens with genius. They press their luck. Let's face it. I mean, they, uh, the genius is always looking at the far horizons. He's always looking beyond the next hill. And one night, Uncle Carl attempted apparently a, a highly controversial and a very experimental batch. He was going to make some kind of special ale, which he had heard about. And it sat down in the basement for a couple of weeks. And one, two o'clock in the morning... It just blew the front off of that little house. It just busted up all those little old those little old compartments down there and all the used bicycles caught on fire and beer flowed all over the floor. And Uncle Carl didn't even wait for them to put the whammy on. He grabbed his wife, Aunt Min, and their two kids, and they left by the back door and they never went back to get their <laughs> Because you know, it's one thing making up a little batch of beer. There's a certain, you know, that there are laws about how much you can make. Well, Uncle Carl went way beyond that. Uncle Carl was turning out enough beer to, to uh, apparently, to uh, run a rather, rather fine competitor to Pabst. I mean, he's turning this thing out by by the barrels full down in the basement, there, and he was selling it all over the place. It was, uh, well, there was this was not during prohibition or anything like that, you know. So he was—he had a real great business going until that night. Boom. And so beer. Yeah, beer. You know how many gallons of beer are drunk in the United States alone every year? You curious? Would make a lake 14 miles long, 8 miles across, and 12 miles deep. 
So you just can't put beer down, friends. I mean, a lot of times you even have trouble keeping it down. But uh, you just, to ignore beer is to ignore life. There ain't no way. No way. Excuse me, this is WOR New York. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. Engineering your success.